Hello, and welcome to Fireside with the VC. My name is Andrew Romans, and today we're sitting with Mike Smirkla, who's the co-founder of Austin-based venture capital firm Next Coast Ventures. By the way, the first time I heard that, I thought, what a dope name for a VC fund. <laughs> I think it's a super cool name. We're going to get into what's behind the name, but um, before becoming a VC, Mike, uh, well, I think you started off in the famous sweatshop of Lehman Brothers. And yeah. then uh, for those that understand the difference between the different uh, bulge bracket places, I think that was the one with the highest temperature, the most sweat and the hardest working conditions. Um, yeah. And and I was sad to see them go along with the volcano or whatever happened back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then moved on into the world of entrepreneurship. Uh, I believe bought a company with 30 employees, grew it to 300, 300 million top line revenue, IPO'd at nearly a billion dollar valuation, which for people as old as us, that was like the winner circle as opposed to a pre-money valuation for some guy investing right before the bubble bursts. Yeah. But, um, and then um, he's actually a published author. So we'll have to offline commiserate about the good and the bad of writing books and how to do all of that. Um, his co-founder uh, was at AV, Austin Ventures. At one point, all the VCs on my VC panel after the demise of AV were ex-AV. So that's, that's good. And I guess it's a 2015 vintage was fun one. Yes. Sir. Um, but, but, you know, if you're going back to AV days and all that, and you must have been on the other side of the table with a lot of bees, this is not new stuff for you, but, um, and uh, Mike is author of Mr. Monkey and me, which was published in late 2020. So I want to make sure we have time to dive into that. But before we get started, a quick uh, tutorial on venture debt. From my buddy Mark. Hi, everybody. This is Mark Ditarjani. I'm with Pacific Western Bank, and we are a bank focused on helping startups grow and get to the next stage. We've been working with Andrew and 7BC for years now. Andrew and I go back a decade and a half at this point, and I've always respected the fact that he's a thought leader in the space and somebody that you can learn an awful lot. And he kind of opens up that window a little bit into VC and what's what's happening in the back room. So we're excited to be partnered with Andrew on his podcast here at Pacific Western Bank. We focus on helping startups get to the next level. We offer a startup services program for companies that are the pre-A, which includes some free banking and some high yield interest rates. And then when companies raise an A round, then we start moving into treasury management services and then venture debt. And we believe that we're one of the leaders in the venture debt market because we are flexible and we can do custom packages and we don't just do off the shelf type of term sheets. So enjoy the podcast. It's going to be a lot of fun. You're going to learn some things and we'll see you on the other side. Thanks, Mark. And anybody who needs an introduction, happy to share your information with them. Just get in touch with me and I'll put you in touch with Mark. Thanks so much for supporting and sponsoring the pod. Okay, Mike, thanks so much for spending time with us. Can't wait to get yeah. into Next Coast Ventures and your book and everything. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Great to be here. Hey, so um, why, don't, why don't you give us a quick background on yourself? I mean, I gave I gave the quick bullet point journey, um, but... Uh, you know, tell me about your background in getting to venture capital and maybe even how that got into Mr. Monkey and me and tell us what that yeah. is. Yeah, you know, kind of, I think that you you and I probably got here the, the old way, if you will, in terms of venture. Um, I 
quick background was the first person in my family to ever go to college. Uh, I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, very humble roots, which ties back to the book. Um, as you said, I got my first couple of jobs were in the finance. I started off as a CPA of all things, walked in day one. Holy cow, what have I done wrong with my life, you know, at 22? But did that for a couple of years, then get, did get a job with Lehman. It was the uh, ultimate sweatshop. Was that, was that New good. York or where were you? Um, I was in Chicago, actually. So Chicago, I okay. In Chicago. I was doing uh, M&A in Chicago for the least uh, known firm in Chicago. So learned some very good selling skills, but we were like selling fertilizer companies and, you know, really gritty M&A stuff. Um, went to Northwestern for the business school and then decided I wanted to get part of the entrepreneurial community. So I moved out to California late nineties and uh, jumped right in. And wasn't that, weren't you with Morgan Stanley for a time? I did. Uh, so yeah, like yeah, dot yeah. com madness days or. Yeah. I went out in, I went out right in the late nineties and it was full on bubble, a bubble, you know, whatever bubbles go. And it was great. I mean, I literally got to work with some amazing founders. It was the wild, wild west for any of the, not just the, the bro culture, but it was just crazy. I mean, things were being created on the dot-com, on the infrastructure, the entire modern web that we have today was being built um, yeah. by some very colorful characters. Um, so I worked there and then I got approached by Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz to go join a company called LoudCloud, which Ben has memorialized in The Hard Thing About the Hard Things, one of the greatest business books in my mind. But I was out helping Mark think about raising capital. He said, I got a better idea. Why don't you come join us? And so I went from khaki pants and loafers and striped shirts to a warehouse in Sunnyvale, California. Like, holy blank, what have I done working for those two guys um, and that team, those four founders, uh, very early days. So I got to see that go from height of give the hottest startup in the valley, IPO barely in 2001, and then, you know, 9-11 happened. Uh, so was that, was that one of those... Um... I mean, I lost three hundred million dollars at that time. Where you know you don't survive the lockup. Were, were you a, a didn't survive oh, yeah. the lockup guy? Uh, or I mean, by the by the time we by the time that company went public, it was the I think might have been the last company out the door in the IPO window in two thousand and one. And the only reason it actually went public is because of Mark and Ben, but really Mark. And so we squeezed out, and the stock traded perfectly down. So I wasn't even I was never really up. <laughs> Let's do it that way. Um, oh, my hey, joke is. Yeah, yeah. When I went there, I, I thought I was going to buy a second house. Um, midway through, I thought maybe I'll buy a new car. And when I left, I think I bought a mountain bike. You know, it was that kind of <laughs> uh, economic journey personally. Um, but yeah, it was an amazing experience. In retrospect, I literally got to go, if you're going to go take a operating job for the first time, what better way to jump in with two amazing entrepreneurs in the height of a a boom to bus cycle. Uh, yeah. Holy cow, you know, 24 months of, of craziness. Yeah. I mean, I think it's good to have that muscle memory buried in you when you're guiding founders through cash raising, cash spending decisions, hiring, all that stuff. Um, do you remember, because at, at, at uh, Morgan, during that was kind of like Frank Quattrone days, were you, were, were IPOs that went out on the NASDAQ doing 18 months? lockups. We had an 18 month lockup, which now just feels like an eternity. Like yeah, how many exactly. wars are we going to have in 18 months? It's like, yeah, 12 to 18 months. And the other thing was interesting, Andrew, if you remember back at that time, which is very different now, 
found it was a negative if the founder had taken any liquidity off oh, or yeah. sold in the IPO. So the founder well, Mark Andreessen is famous for doing that, right? Like when, yeah. when Netscape had the IPO, um, uh, with um, what's the Silicon Graphics guy's name? I can't believe. Oh, I'm... it was Clark and Barksdale. Jim. Clark yeah, 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 yeah. So, um. I mean, I remember in the press, uh, everyone was very upset with Mark Andreessen for selling a massive block in the first week of, you know, yeah. listing of Netscape. And he's like, hey, man, my dad made me do it. And I was like, God bless Mark Andreessen's yeah. father. Yeah. That yeah. is like, like in my first book on the M&A chapter, my, you know, inspiring quote is I made most of my money selling too early JP Morgan. And, yeah. you know, so it's written by you know, JP Morgan apparently said, well, I made most of my money selling too early. And yeah. I'll tell you, there's not more wisdom in a sentence than that. Like, uh, so, and, and Mark Andreessen's done perfectly fine of yeah. having sold <laughs> some yeah, of his yeah, Netscape yeah. shares before the crash of the dot-com. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it was just, and it's a crazy time, right? I mean, oddly enough, as as you get older, you go, wow, a lot of the, the things we're seeing in the venture community now, and if this is being recorded in 2023, same thing happened 20 years ago uh, or 22 years ago. Um, but yeah, so, so I came to that. Uh, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. The only problem is I didn't have a great idea. So I found this thing called the search fund, which wealthy guys give you a little bit of money to go find a company to buy. Um, I found myself in a crappy airport outside of San Francisco International Airport. Uh, thinking two years ago, I was working on Wall Street. A year ago, I was flying on Mark and Jason's private jet. And now I'm cold calling, you know, people trying to get them to sell me their business and they're hanging up on me. So it definitely had a hollowing, like what the F have I done with my life? Um, but I got lucky. I found a great business to buy a tech enabled services company. Uh, I raised capital. I bought that with a firm called Houstonic Partners. Uh, then Benchmark came, came in and invested oh, wow. in the business. Um, Bruce Dunleavy, one of the founders. Joined my board, General Atlantic, in 2008. Oh, wow. Uh, then we took it public in 2011. And um, I ran it for three and a half years as a public company. By the end, as you mentioned, a couple million to 300 million, 3,000 employees around the world. A really amazing entrepreneurial experience and one that was you know, quite lucrative for my investors and you know, pretty good for me as well. Oh, it's fantastic. I moved to Austin, in, uh, moved to Austin in, fifth, in 16 to start Next Coast Ventures, as you mentioned, with... Uh, Tom Ball, a, a longtime friend. Okay, so you're, you're so you're like a transplant, a transplant like yeah. me. I mean, I, I've been coming to Austin my whole career because I've had Austin-based, uh, you know, startups I was working with. But um, yeah, I moved in January 2021. So 2016. I mean, you did well in real estate. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good time you, to move here. Yeah, that was a good time to be getting a good house uh, and leaving the lovely tax environment of California and everything else you got going over there. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so tell us quickly about Mr. Monkey. I want Mr. Monkey and me. That's the title of your book. Um, you know, published November of 2017. When did you really start that book? Or is that, you've been writing that book since high school or? No, no, no. It was, I think it was published in 20, um, actually in 20. Yeah. It was right after the, I remember it was because right after Trump, lost to Biden. Um, I'll tell you, there's a funny story about the cover, but um, yeah, so, so I'll basically after I left uh, Service Source and I started the starting Next Coast Ventures, I always enjoyed writing, but one, I really wrote it because I found a pretty big void in content that I saw for entrepreneurs. I saw on the one hand, there's the, how do you write a business plan? And actually, I mean, I mean, your books are great about like some of the, how do you think about venture capital? How do you think about M&A and, and 
wonderful content there. Uh, the other one was what I called entrepreneur porn, which was, you know, I started this business two years ago and now I'm Mark Zuckerberg. Certainly yeah, a it's a victory ago. lap book. It doesn't help yeah. anybody. It's just like, it's it so many anybody. actionable content. I wake up, I put my trousers on and make a billion dollars. Yeah, it doesn't exactly. help anybody. Mark Zuckerberg, you know, inspire like, someone to go in the industry. I don't know. Well, I think what it did, Andrews, I think it gave a lot of false positives to entrepreneurs. Like, hey, this should be easy. This shouldn't take that long. <laughs> And, and nothing I found in the market was addressing the mental aspect of entrepreneurship. And yeah. I, so I looked at my own career as an entrepreneur. I looked at what I saw from Mark and Ben. And then I interviewed some of my really dear friends who have been much, much more successful than I am and said, what were the mental aspects that you most would call out in yourself or others about successful entrepreneurship? And that's what it is. Um, this is not a book of my joke. If this was the Mike Smirko story, it would be like a page and a half blog. Post, um, this is really about the mental aspect of entrepreneurship. And the real star of it is why the title um, was a, a kind of caricature, if you will, of a monkey. That was my alter ego telling me I couldn't do it. I wasn't going to be successful. And the whole book, obviously, it's a play and hopefully a light read, but really trying to get entrepreneurs to understand you're always going to have this voice. It's never going to go away. So how do you offset that and start thinking about mental tenacity to really get through all the ups and downs that um, that you know you know so well as as anyone who's been through the journey understands. Yeah, I I mean I've been I've been since I wrote my first book I've been keeping a, um, an outline of things for a fourth book, and um, I I like wait for things to happen. And so like something happens, I'm like, is that good enough to go in the book or not? And you learn you got to keep it down to 200 pages. Like if you just yeah. write a book, it'll be like 900 pages. So you got to keep yeah. it down to 200. And there's one of like, uh, about like nuclear options versus chemical weapons. And like, what are, when things are going really, really bad. And I even talk about suicide because I've got a bunch of people that have taken their own lives, or, you know, you know, that I was dealing with, you know, during or before or after, you know, or during or before, you know. So Somewhere. I think the, yeah. your book is really important. I'm going to definitely pick up a copy. I'll put a link in the show notes for that just because um, it's certainly, um, it was easy for somebody, but it's not easy for most people. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So why don't we- well, thank you. And I'll, I'll make a shit. One yeah. thing I will okay. call out for the listeners is all proceeds go to charity. This is, I set up a scholarship for diverse and underrepresented uh, entrepreneurs who are interested in entrepreneurship. So all the money goes that my- PR folks are always like, don't forget to say that. So I'm sorry, I want to throw that in there. I'm, I'm no, 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 no. I saw, I saw that, and that, and that is yeah. nice. Um, I'd like plug. to see James you. Plug. I'd like. To, how about you keep all the royalties from the book, and then you you do 10 percent of your uh, your carry to to charity. <laughs> like you know, you're you're, you're a CPA, so you're, too smart for you, that. you're you're a published author, so you know that uh, you know the economics of book publishing. So. I like yeah. the foreign book rights. I'm in six languages. I thought that worked pretty well. You know, Did I've got really? nothing okay, great that's... to say about McGraw-Hill, but I'll talk to you about maybe maybe I should use it. Anyway, let's not get distracted on yeah, all yeah, my yeah. experiences and knowledges about books and publishers and all those deals. Um, So Next Coast Ventures, I love the name and the name says a bit about what you guys are up to. So why don't you give us the framework of uh, what makes the firm different and for people to understand when to show you deal flow? Yeah, so we we set up a, with a our mantra is built by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs, and that really was a a model we saw. Tom had been an entrepreneur before he joined Austin Ventures, 
we wanted to come to central Texas, invest in the next coast. We thought there was an entrepreneurial movement happening, not just in Austin, but similar markets, but Austin's a great place to do this. And um, our ethos and every person on our investment team has actually built and run a business. So we've sweated payroll, we've laid awake at night, four in the morning, wondering how we were gonna survive. We've done layoffs, we've done all that stuff. Um, and I don't know if that makes us better or worse investors. I think what it does help us at the board level is have a little more contextual reference. It helps us give, we say to entrepreneurs, hey, it's your bus, you're driving the bus. We're just gonna try and help you on both sides of it, uh, the good and the bad, uh, and have a frame of reference, which perhaps is different because we, we've actually done the job. Uh, in terms of what we look for, we tend to invest in enterprise software, consumer, and emerging platforms. Those are our three kind of broad enough to drive a truck through verticals. And uh, Series A, Series B, lead, take lead investments, join boards, um, don't do a lot of seed. We tend to do a little more pragmatic technology, meaning we underwrite things to a, a pretty realistic outcome. If it's super technical, way cutting edge, or a massive burn company, uh, for example, we didn't do anything in Web3 or crypto, thankfully now, but it just, you know, we look for areas that we know really well, relatively small firm, about 600 uh, million of AUM. So we're looking for things where we can write a five to $15 million check, roll up our sleeves and help. If it's on, you know, other end of the spectrum, we're going to pass pretty quickly and let you get back to focusing on, on, on the day job. And for... For, so you said five to 15, is that what you said? Yeah, five to 15 is a sweet and, spot. And, and if you're doing five, does that mean it's a 10 million round or does that mean it's a 5 million round? Usually it's five or, you know, maybe it's if there's a syndicate. We're usually not the first money in. We're, we're typically following a seed fund or an angel round. So I would say if it's a $5 million round, we're putting in five and maybe the rest of the, the previous syndicates doing a couple million bucks. But yeah, it's the round size would be in the, five to seven, all the way up to maybe 15 to 20, but we're okay. running the majority of that check. And with, and, and it's late January, 2023, as we're having this conversation, where, what is typically top line revenue look like for a company that is going to land a $5 million round versus a $15 million round? In yeah, today's I mean, typical, market? yeah, I mean, today's market, I would say, you know, we're not we're not paying value prices. We never did. Um, it, that's been one, one. I think why our fund performance. We're in our third fund. Um, touch wood, even with the craziness, uh, look to be pretty strong performing funds. But we just have we underwrite things to a, a very different outcome. But to answer your question, I would say for a five million dollar fund, it's going to be somewhere past ideation. We rarely do just pure ideation, but it's going to be ideation to maybe a million dollars of ARR. Um, I think if we're getting more into the five to, or the more the 12 to 15 million, it's usually going to be, you know, a year or two past that. So maybe it's three to 4 million of ARR. Uh, what we're trying to do though, Andrew, is we're really trying to come in and say, we're going to help you with go to market. We're going to help you with org build out and KPI and a little more efficiency on the business. So we, we feel like we're really good when you've got some product market fit, but haven't hit, really haven't optimized any part of your business and feel like our job is to do that for a good three to four years. And then you know, typically uh, followed on by growth equity or or larger funds. Yeah. And and you've spent like me most of your days in Silicon Valley. Um, does I thought the name meant that we do not, and I thought I saw it on your website, like we do not invest in New York or the Valley. And we're 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 looking for the 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 middle part of, geographically. 
but, but yeah, I mean, with all your ask. network, can you say no to these deals that come to you from like Mark um, Andreessen and yeah, I mean, I would say like, yes, the, the first uh, part of it's true. It's generally spoken to the next coast. We, when we've done things on the coast and we've done a couple in New York and a couple in the Valley, it's been absolutely network led. Um, to, like you have a lot of friends in the community. And so if someone calls you up and said, great opportunity to be part of this, and that's usually going to be on something we know or have some experience on, um, we'll participate. But yeah, 90% of the, of the work and capital is going to go into next coast markets the primary one being austin so it's yeah. good stuff going on right now i mean there's no question that there are stupid valuations in new york in the valley and uh i just you know i'm a spectator watching people i know invest at a 125 million pre for so-and-so's yeah. new company with no revenue and looks awfully hard <laughs> you know um yeah. but sometimes i think in the emerging market or more provincial you know, startup ecosystem, that the valuations can be even higher. You know, you got people that are fenced in that can only invest in Ohio or something. And the, the guy who sold his last company to Cisco comes along and he, you know, and, and he raises a huge valuation where in the Valley, like I even fault New York for doing this. Like New York optimizes oh. for dilution. Like, so a company with 10 million with a certain, they might raise um, 50 on 200. So they've got a 250 million post the latest investors aren't going to accept and they'll block anything below a 4x. So you need a billion dollar outcome for it to happen. Whereas yeah. that same company in the Valley might've done 10 on 40, 50 million post. You sit down with your Frank Quattrone or you when you're at Morgan and the list of buyers you're going to approach is huge. Whereas yeah. how many people are ready to buy that thing for more than YouTube sold for or whatever, or more than AdMob, like, you know, yeah. more than AdMob, you know? Yeah, and that was considered. Yeah, I think like you're right. Fifty was big. I think that um, I think you're going to have a kind of a walking class of zombies. My son's watching The Walking Dead, which is a horrible show. But like, oh you know, my like, god, my kid's got a poster of that, and it's oh. seen like a gazillion episodes. If he had been there preparing like for the episodes. SAT, he'd be getting a perfect score. That's a, I have the same son, and it's so funny because I'm like, how many seasons are there? He's like, there's like 14 seasons. I know he's on season 14. It's crazy. Yeah. They just keep coming. Um, but it, <laughs> I think there's going to be a group of companies that have raised a bunch of money that have gotten to, you know, call it 20 to 50 million of ARR. And all those expectations are there. No one's going to buy them. And, you know, we talked to founders, uh, having been a founder and, and gone through it. Listen, I want you to avoid dilution, right? And I'm going to ask you to be to, to sell for below market. But I think pragmatism, understanding to your point, like when my company went public, Michael Grimes, the Morgan Stanley guy, which is my former boss, took us public. You know, we thought we'd price that in 11. It was supposed to price around six, 700, which was a huge outcome. And it traded up to at one point above a billion. And we were literally like, you know, we probably had a couple hundred million of revenue. We're like, holy cow, we're a billion dollar business. It was crazy. And then, you know, it settled in there. So it traded pretty well. But that was an amazing outcome. And it was so damn hard. And what I try and convey to entrepreneurs is it's going to be a really hard journey. And I think right now you got a bunch of entrepreneurs that raised way too high. They're burning way too much capital. And now they're going through this painful process. Everything has to be reset. So if you can avoid that from get go, I think you have a chance to build a much better chance to build a sustainable business. Yeah, I think I think like uh, 2023 is a good vintage, uh, you know, but it, there were some people that were buying into pre-IPO late stage stuff 
at multiples that were mirroring a stock market that yep. was out of whack. And I'm not the smartest guy by far, and I can't predict the future economy. It's way too complicated. But I felt very confident that if SAS multiples normally were 12, and now they're 47, most of our companies don't sell like day trading right away crypto. We hold for like five years in a day to get the QSBS, and that's just what happens. I'd be willing to give up QSBS if someone bought faster, but these things take years. So what are the chances that it's going to be a 47 multiple in the public market in five years from now or three years from now? I just really, I think we're in a bubble blip. And so statistically, yeah. it was very dumb to be investing at, you know, bizarre multiples at that time when when you're not going to exit within the same moment, you know? Yeah. It's really funny. I mean, you, you know, it's not like you have a teenager as well. It, it's a little bit like I, I try and talk to my teenager about life and they kind of look at me like, yeah, whatever old guy, right? And I felt like I was having those conversations a couple of years ago with founders, but having lived through 99 and then lived through 07, 08, 07, 08 didn't impact as much technology, but it was still out there. You just understand that these things don't, don't last. But having said that, you know, you talk to a 20, a blank year old entrepreneur first time and you say, here's why you don't want to raise capital at too high a price. Yeah, whatever old guy, like this yeah. isn't going to end. Yeah. And these things end, they, they do end and we live in cycles. And I, I tend to believe um, that we're now in a prolonged retraction, largely because of the Federal Reserve. And, you know, not I'm not that smart, but I can look at 80 year charts of interest rates and the correlation to stock prices. Just, so so let's talk about that. I think I think um uh what is your and you've got an enormous wonderful background and that CPA stuff has almost, almost been my favorite thing in your background because like <laughs> unlike some people you actually understand what retained earnings are. But I tell you what, it was pretty fun as a side note with my CFO when I was a CEO because every once in a while he would drop some of that CFO or that CPA language. I'm like, I know what that means, kind of. I still or even remember, worse, you know? he's getting it wrong. Even worse. Like, <laughs> like, you know, it's like, what did you say? Gross margin yeah. is what? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, well, so uh, no one can predict. I think Mark Andreessen said it best. He said, um, the macro, the global economy is so complicated with so many moving parts. It is impossible for anyone. There is no yeah. Craig computer that can process it. But no. Um, what is your sense to answer the impossible question? Like, do you think interest rates are going to go up? Do you think property prices in Austin are going up or down over the next six months? Like what's your thought? Yeah, I don't, I don't, see, I, I think that you, you have to, I mean, again, I'm parroting what I hear from a lot of folks. of so what, what happens That's in good. the market and black swan and stuff, but you know, I, fundamentally the federal reserve has to do something with inflation. Inflation is not like the thing I think it's overlooked on in inflation is you cannot go pay someone who works at an entry level job, $15 an hour, and then pull that back. You, you don't, you don't pull back wages rarely. So once you take, you know, if you used to pay someone at subway, $7, then it goes to 10, it goes to 15. It's really hard to go back to seven. And so I just think there's a natural wage inflation that still hasn't worked its way through the system. The only way to mitigate that is through interest rate. And I can't imagine, maybe they don't continue to raise interest rates, but they're not going to be able to move on interest rates down for 24 months, at least in my opinion, which tends to mean to your other question, I would not want to be trying to sell a house in Austin right now or any, or any market. It's just the U.S. consumer. And I don't, I don't think the U.S. consumer, the average U.S. consumer has processed the reset on all costs. So if you're buying a new car, 
you're buying a house, whatever you get, credit card debt, your interest rate cycle is going to impact you in a pretty negative way. And we've only just begun that set. So I don't know. I, I think it takes 18, 24 months for people to go, holy cow, I'm, I'm not, you know, I can't afford this or I need to cut back on that. That just hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Like in a world of like fake news, uh, getting information from your portfolio companies is actually an amazing source of information. So with, with your 40 companies, I'd like to hear what you're yeah. seeing there. Like one example is I have a portfolio company, Envoy America, where they're kind of Uber for the elderly. So if your you know, mom has Alzheimer's, you're not just going to send her an Uber, but you can send her an Envoy America to take her to yeah, church or whatever. And they started um, uh, taxing around COVID positive people for like kidney dialysis and things. And all of a sudden their COVID revenue, they were charging a lot more per ride for COVID than for a non-COVID. And so we had like weekly numbers of what was actually happening with COVID going up yeah. or down. And it was fascinating with your portfolio companies and what you have like 40, right? Or 50? 40, yeah. Okay. Yeah. What, what are you seeing on like sales cycle times? Um, like, like sometimes it's a boom economy and people are like, all right, thank you for reaching out. We'll set a Zoom for next week. And then they're like, you know, we're in a hiring freeze. I don't know. Let's set a call for March or April. Yeah. And, it, and it slows yeah. down. On the other hand, if if times are tough for the you know enterprise buyers of this technology, they can't afford not to use technology that's going to lower their costs or increase their sales or you know do the job of a human 10 times better or 50 humans. What, what are you seeing... You know, yeah, it's how rough question. it is. You know, we, I mean, it's interesting. We, we had this even before COVID. We, we'd always stress that because having been operators, we always say, what happens when in a recession? That was kind of our, any kind of, certainly on the enterprise side and even on the consumer, we don't, so we do some consumer. It was always like, what, what happens? Um, I would say that universally what we're seeing is, and this is where I think the, the rat going through the snake is just happening. Everyone's cutting costs. Everyone's slowing down sales cycles. Anything that's not mission critical is being pushed. And our, so that's, I think, happening on all of our companies selling. I think the other thing that's happening is every even emerging growth companies are now looking at all their SaaS subscriptions. You know, the average SaaS company, average, you know, even $5 million company probably has 40 different SaaS subscriptions. Huh, do we need all 40? So I, you're starting to see all of that move through. I would say that our, our most of our board right and board season right now has been things are going to slower, take longer, cutting costs. And now we're saying reduce burn. So all of that's happening. Yeah. And I get back to the same thing with the U.S. consumer. I'm sure your portfolio, you're seeing the same thing. It's just now starting to wait, work its way through. Right. So when we're looking at projections for this year, we're saying to all of our portfolio companies, have you thought about churn? Have you thought about delays? Are we really, are we using the models from the last two years of sales productivity and just extrapolating forward, or are we assuming some sort of reset? And I think that's what, um, again, is just starting to happen. And I don't think it's worked its way through the yeah. U.S. economy or, it, or I mean, I mean, community yet. But if you look at like the the YC company that is selling their their product service offering to the YC alumni, and then the YC yeah. alumni startups were um, raising twenty five million on one hundred and twenty five million pre on one yeah. million revenue. And then that gets corrected. And by the way, that twenty-five million was going to last a year because they were going to be able to go raise that, well, that you know, well, five hundred million in twelve months. Yeah. So, so the twenty-four. So, so this this is the point. The twenty the twenty-five million financing for this 
hypothetical company was going to last maximum 24 months, right? Yep. So yep. they were going to burn through that in 24 months, you know, God save the queen, it's going to happen. Or they were going to burn through it in 18 months. And if they can line up another financing, they could accelerate, right? Yep. So let's just call it 18 months, $25 million spent over 18 months was the plan. So what they're going to do mostly is hire people, which means more software seats for the one guy yep. selling so he's landing and expanding ACV average contract value is growing with existing logos because they're raising a $25 million round. Now that by like October of 2021, that same company closed a $7 million round on a 32 million pre and they're going to make 7 million last the same 18 months. And, yeah. but that was still growth for the, for the guy selling to his YC you know, brothers and sisters. So I think there's a whole bunch of reasons to think that the growth that we had um, coming out of into May of 2020, when it turned out that COVID is like the best thing to ever happen to digitization of the world. Um, and then it flew through 2021, you know, just hiring freezes. I was talking to First Republic Bank yesterday and they said they have a hiring freeze at, at First Republic Bank. Yeah, well, I've got a buddy, a friend of mine who runs a multi-billion-dollar, still private, but public or private equity-backed uh, SaaS company and software company. He said, "I said, what's the biggest change?" You said, "He's like, no one's quitting." Like, wow. I mean, you know, California-based. He's like, no one's quitting. So, what do you mean, no one's quitting? To see that he, he was like, oh, oh so no one's quitting no, their job because they think no I'm lucky quitting. to have this job. Yeah, like he was saying, you know, we normally plan for this level of attrition, and suddenly no one's quitting. So I actually what the thing I think what's fascinating if you, if you kind of go through what happened we all saw in '99 to 2001 is okay you got a bunch of software companies selling to other emerging growth companies that's dangerous but then start to play through what about real estate uh, there's a bunch of software tools that came out for real estate or for HR to deal with remote work or hyper growth you've got all these categories that were built upon a five year plus cycle of hyper growth and easy credit and all that that suddenly changed so you got to rework all of that and that's where i think the i think the fallout in the venture community and, and we'll be part of it you know we'll experience it as well hasn't really hit then i feel in the fact that a lot of those companies raised a bunch of money 18 to 24 months ago or 12 months ago if they're not managing a burn that you know that really blankets the fan here um in 2023 maybe 2024 yeah, I think I think you know from my perspective, from our perspective, valuations coming down, startups uh, tolerating real due diligence as opposed yep. to it's it's Thursday the deal's got to close by tomorrow. I said yep. like they're sending they're sending signature documents on DocuSign. They're not sending me answers to my questions. You know what I mean? Yeah. That a return yeah, yeah, yeah. to DD, lower valuations, um, austerity at the startup level of making seven million do what twenty five was going to do badly anyway. Don't go renting a Rolls Royce at South by Southwest. Maybe don't even go to South by if it's a waste yeah. of time, you know, like just making smarter decisions and then talent, you know, hiring freezes at the corporates. We, our startups all compete. Your startups compete to hire people that get, you know, Gwen Stefani playing while they eat a Michelin star sandwich <laughs> at lunch, you yeah. know? Yeah. So yeah. I, I think that I, yeah. talent is a big deal. You know, I, I actually think, I mean, I, I take this up for I think that if I was an entrepreneur back to being an entrepreneur, I'd much rather be starting a business now than I would have four years ago. Yeah. When I started as an entrepreneur, 
watching, you know, Mark and Ben do it in 99 when we were, you know, the cover of Wired magazine when there was a thing and it was like, yeah. and, you know, Ben was like, you can't hire fast enough. That was the mantra. Like, we're going to be so big. You have to, it was all scale, scale, scale. And that was the song of the day. So I don't mean to dismiss it. Contrast when I became an entrepreneur in 2003, holy cow. The that was nuclear was winter hire. still. Yeah. And the, and the, and the ability to build culture I liken it to, you know, it's kind of like right now what's happening is like, I've got kids, like if I had given my 10 year old sugar for 10 years and now go eat your vegetables, really hard message. I'd much rather start now because to all the things you mentioned, you can build a culture. You can get people to come to want to work for you for the mission, not just for the, you know, outsized return. So I think it's going to be a little bit easier or a better time to start a business, but those who are already in the journey, yeah, it's, it's pretty painful to be sad. Well, I, I, I always have an affinity for the VC that was a founder that has done layoffs and all that. I remember my VCs demanding that I spend not less than $25,000 a month on PR to be on the cover of Wired magazine in, in like 1997, 1998, that yeah. period of time. And I, I did it for a while. Then I fired one PR firm, then I hired another. And I was like, look, we're going to learn as much as we can from these idiots and we're going to fire them and bring it in house and to hell with the VCs. I'm just not going to waste that money. And, you know, Ben Horowitz is kind of like, I mean, I, I shouldn't, well, let's not say him. A lot of VCs are like, I'm going to put nitroglycerin in the gas tank of yep. each of my portfolio companies, push them to the motor blowing up so that four of them get to a billion. I own 25%. That's my billion return. And if it leaves dead bodies and suicides all over the streets, you know, so be it. And so I think it's good for a founder to stand up to their VC when they know 25 grand a month could be spent on some young person who all their friends work here. She's dying to work here. We can have her do what the PR firm we believe was doing or we weren't happy with. So I think it's great to really watch the spending and have compassion of not putting nitroglycerin in the tank of every one of your portfolio yeah. companies and i think to that to, to add to that andrew it's a great point it's like listen andrews and horowitz has built an amazing firm with phenomenal returns as far as i can tell so that model works i just say to entrepreneurs just know who you're you know know who you're dancing with right like if if that's the model and it's going to be we're going to pour uh super fuel on this and it's billion dollar outcome or bust that's fine as long as you know that's the movie that's not the movie we play um we're a different movie and you know they both can work uh, certainly for investors, I think we're going to drive great returns. It's going to be a very different way. And so yeah. I, I think it's just it, you, the temptation of the entrepreneur is take the name firm, take the money, take the highest valuation. And I get why there's some real value to that. But just make sure you understand that, you know, the, what, what you're getting in return for that is going to be different. And that's what that's what I think gets lost sometimes. Well, so let's let's switch gears to um, starting a fund. A lot of our listeners are emerging managers or thinking about it. Um, like what does the world need? 10 more million VCs. I don't know about that, but anyway, it's probably <laughs> yeah, what we're going to get. So yeah. um, fund one. Now your partner was at AV. So in yep. some ways I would put you guys in the category of spin out to some extent. Um, yep. How did you, but he's got an entrepreneurial background as well. How did you, how'd you raise fund one? Like, like, did you have an anchor yeah. LP? Did you have an anchor LP no. or did you just jump into the pool? No, not to the end. I mean, it's interesting. I, I had this amazing, uh, well, so I'd raise a bunch of capital. I was I was way overconfident coming into the fundraising. Admittedly, I was like, I wish you'd know. Um, and, and 
married to that, Bruce Dunleavy was the, one of the founders of Benchmark, great mentor, said, when I told him I was going to do this, well, I'm just a wonderful human being, said, okay, um, who do you want to talk to? Um, I don't know, Bruce, anybody. Literally pulls out like the best names in the LP community. And when Bruce calls them up and says, hey, you should meet with these guys, you tend to get the meeting. So we had some real advantages. My partner had been in venture and had been an entrepreneur. I had taken a company public and we've got this. So I went in way overconfident. Uh, and then Bruce had warned me, he said, just trust me, it's going to be a slog. Uh, slog, come on, I, you know, blah, blah, blah. It was a slog. Um, we were aided by the fact that we put a lot of our own money in. So we were making a outsized GP commitment. We then started with family offices and people who know us to kind of get some foundation. And then we met with, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of LPs who I would walk in with this Cambridge report. This is 2015, 16. I'd say, you know, that first time funds that are sub $100 million, where the GPs are putting a lot of their own money in, there's like massive data that suggests they outperform. And this is factual. Say, it's factual. You can't, no, factual. You can't, you can't argue against like gravity, but what happened? But, uh, well, <laughs> you're a new fund. You don't, you never work together. We'll wait till, you know, fun three, three. So it was literally like, uh, and this community we sell to, and I don't mean to dismiss them. One of my friends on the LP side said, listen, we're like, we're like trout in a river all day long, all day long. Stuff's coming at us. We're looking for a reason to say no, because, you know, like if you're UTIMCO or Harvard, you're seeing thousands every day. Here's another new firm or, and you're trying to manage like, Hey, I'm, I've got this commitment to benchmark. I don't want to lose that. So I've got to save a spot for that. So they've got really challenging jobs. That yeah. But by the way, Harvard, Harvard told me I had dinner with a guy from Harvard endowment. He'd actually spun out and had like a few billion. He was, so he ran the Harvard venture endowment practice for yeah. a long time. He goes, he had a couple of drinks at the dinner and he's like, look, Andrew, let me just come out and tell you the truth. You haven't even gone through generational transformation yet. This yeah. is not going to happen until that happens. And so I said, so I need to retire <laughs> and then the returns need to remain, you know, at yeah. this seven X or whatever consistency. And yeah. then we would get, you're no longer at Harvard money. And yeah. No, so it's yeah. Good to it. I thought I was raising for fund three when I was raising for fund one. Yeah. And then I was just like, well, maybe we should just like, they want to have dinner, but maybe we shouldn't go. Well, the, the thing that I found, and I would say like my advice from my long-winded story is the, the, the flip side is these people, the, the LPs are always looking. So they spend a lot of time meeting. Like, listen, if, if an entrepreneur shows up today, I had one the meeting beforehand. It's not a fit for us. I have no problem staying on the thing. I don't want to waste your time. Not going to be a fit for next Ghost Ventures. Go spend your time elsewhere. I, to me, that's like being respectful of the entrepreneur, not wasting my time, not wasting her time. Move on. Hell yeah. The LP community does not have that level of, in my opinion, because they're like, I don't know. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe. You, you, I, I, we've spent a lot of time meeting with folks that only after the fact, I remember one meeting we met with like six times and finally we said, what do you think? He's like, oh, we don't have any venture allocation left. <laughs> Yeah, why, yeah. Why? Why it's did you meet with me six times? It, it, well, I, I think mean, the word you're looking for is compassion. Like they don't have a level of compassion that you you have yeah. compassion for the founder yeah. of saying. And also, you're like, look, I don't work at Wilson Sonsini. I'm not getting paid for for this either. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So, but uh, but on the flip side, you know, they they take you know the flip side they back folks like us. They're taking a huge risk. You know, like. I don't know. Partnerships blow up. You don't, you know, so, so they are giving you kind of a blank check. 
So, so I get it, but it was a slog. And it's gotten a little bit easier. And so when fun, did you, so, so fund one was vintage 2015. Does that mean you were raising it in 2014? Um, I think it was vintage 16. So we, we spent, it took us about a year. So we spent most of 15 raising it and started playing capital in 16. That was probably a good time to be raising. 2015 was kind right. of go, go, go. I mean, I mean, our our own portfolio companies were 4Xing, 3Xing, 2Xing revenue, and the valuations were going up fast. So share price, it was just good time, you know, back then. Time, um, yeah. And and what were the uh what were the dynamics of going from a fund one to a fund two was your lp base pretty much exclusively institutional um fund one it was not fund two it shifted that way so our goal was we run in a, a more institutional money in fund two and then really fund three which we just raised a year ago was when we switched over to kind of 80 20 and brought in some substantial names that that had watched our performance yep. five years, realized that our partnership was working, realized that we were recruiting talent and getting great entrepreneurs. And then I wouldn't say it was easy, but it was dramatically easier. And, you know, a, a big check coming into a fund versus a bunch of little ones for, for obvious reasons is a, is a different deal. So that was a, that was a big shift in fund three, not fund two. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good to hear. Um, it's not an easy transition to go from people that know you to closing these endowments that, you know, like, like I've got friends that raised a new fund to fund and I was like, Hey, you know, so is now the time? And he's like, no, Andrew, it was all warehoused. I, I basically yeah. had logos of people that were already in. We got bigger value allocations to them. There was like two yeah. or three that gave me a warehouse allocation we shopped it. We got it done in time. So it was spent before it was raised, you know? Yep. And so like, and so, so what you want to do is get a seat in that boat. Right? And then yep. they let them make their fortune gathering your logo among a few others um, and have steady institutional as opposed to like, we've had people put big checks in, in fund one and two and three, and then getting into fund four, they're like, you know, I'm at the age where I shouldn't be writing $5 million checks. If anything, I should be trying to spend it. And, yeah. I, and I was like, all right, damn, I thought he was investing for his estate at this point, right? Which many are, you know, which many are. But um, it's tough to make that transition into institutional. So that's great to hear. Yep. And so on closing out on on the exit market, it you said it's not, you wouldn't want to be selling your house in Austin or anywhere right now um, on just in a regular real estate property. What do you think about um, timing on a business being sold or acquired in 2023, 2024? It'd be nice for you guys to turn some TVPI into DPI. Yeah, I think it's going to be uh, equally tough. I, you know, I think that the, the thing, depending on category, of course, but to, you made a great point, made several great points early on when you said how many companies, uh, let, let's use Salesforce, for example, obviously just for this week came in, I think an activist joined in that stock for the first time ever. Uh, so your Salesforce, your corporate development Salesforce, how many companies do you think are on your radar or are you getting pitched to on a regular basis, right? And, you know, are you going to go do, and you can pick Salesforce or SAP or any of the big category leaders, you're getting, there's a huge number of companies out there. You're trying to figure out if you're going to go do anything significant in terms of size. And oh, by the way, you know, your stock price is being under pressure and, and all the things that are happening in the economy to you as well. So I, I, I'm confident there's going to be some some good opportunistic 
plays and people are going to be able to, I think there's going to be big companies that say like, Hey, you know what? I like, I like that space, but the valuations were crazy. Maybe I'll go make a play now that they come back in line. Uh, but I think for the most part, it's um, I think it's gonna be slow. I just don't, I don't can't imagine that uh, any of these companies have the appetite to do a bunch of deals and, and there's a bunch of opportunities. So I would be highly selective. I think the private equity, the buyout funds are going to be super active, um, buying things that are, are really attractive, whether that's private or public will be interesting to see. But, you know, the Silver Lakes, the Toma Bravos, these guys have all, Hellman and Friedman, they've raised massive funds. Yeah. Um, pale in comparison. I mean, you and I are playing inching game, but you know, when you're raising 20 to $30 billion to put to work over the next three years, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, they may just kind of follow the Elon playbook i mean at least on the side of uh does twitter need all those employees you know i mean, I mean yeah. guys like that you know they 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 have the money they come in the company didn't want to go through down rounds they didn't have the heart to fire all these people that shouldn't be even in the building and those chainsaw guys just rev up that chainsaw they buy it and they'll yeah. say 80 percent. you know like yeah i've done this exercise to save the company where i'm like all right i'm coming over we're going to go through every single expense, starting with every person. And I'm going to say yep. that person's fired and you fight for why they cannot be fired. And then in yep. the end, we'll save the company. And, you know, it sounds rough, but it's better to save a few women and children from the Titanic than sink a boat to the bottom of the ocean with everybody in it. And then maybe you can yep. hire some people back, you know, or especially in the Valley. It's like these people can walk across the street and find a better job anyway. You know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like Google lays off fifteen thousand people, which which was kind of interesting because it was like, wow, okay, that shows you where things are. But you know, you're a Google engineer. I, I saw someone guy saying, "I've been in Google for twenty years." It's like, well, how much money did you make? Oh yeah, Google for twenty no, well, years. We, we love those made guys. A lot of money. Yeah, I mean, like you know, oh, yeah, how, exactly. you know, it's like you joined Microsoft in nineteen ninety seven and you left last year. Let's have dinner. I'll be in Seattle. I'll be in Seattle. <laughs> I'll meet you in Woodenville. Let's go. And then that makes for a great LP because he literally knows yeah. a lot of people. Been to Asia, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, um, great, great, great talking to you today. Yeah, uh, thanks, we'll, we'll put a link to, or send me the right link for what on Amazon or I can find it. And I look yep, forward to we'll seeing to you soon around town. Yeah. Thanks, Andrew. Really appreciate it. Okay, mate. Great. Have a great day. Bye for now. You too. Bye now. Well, that was certainly interesting. It's Mark Dittarjani with Pacific Western Bank back here. Again, really excited to be part of the podcast with 7BC and Andrew. And we're excited just to support the ecosystem and help you get to whatever your next step is in your business journey. Thank you very much.